0: Well, here at Living Water Church, we preach what we call expository sermons. And so, whether you've heard of that or not, I'll explain what that means. An expository sermon simply aims to expose the meaning of a text. So, what we aren't trying to do is introduce anything new or novel to you. I'm not here to try to impress you with something that you may have not heard before. But at the same time, we don't want to take anything away from God's word because we might think it's confusing or offensive or anything like this. And so what this looks like for us practically is we go verse by verse, line by line through a book of the Bible. And we do this even as our, 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 we've been in Colossians now for the better part of a year now, and, and We're still in chapter one, and so it might take us a little while to get through this, but we're going verse by verse, line by line over the course of months so that we might receive the full counsel of God, so that we might not hobby horse on our favorite passages or our favorite topics, whatever it may be. And this is the benefit of of expository preaching. We all will therefore receive the full counsel of God's word, not just my favorite subjects, not just Tate's favorite subjects. And yet there's a challenge with expository preaching as well. The challenge is this. We are going to face scriptures and topics that are unpopular. And this might be challenging, especially as the hostility against the gospel grows and increases. The challenge also is added because oftentimes the preacher himself might not immediately be gripped by the text that's assigned to him as we go line by line through this particular letter. And so Tate and I, we pray that the Lord would grip our hearts week in and week out with what the scripture says so that we might preach to you plainly with boldness and that we might actually be changed by it too and so that you would as well. But then another challenge with expository preaching is well, sometimes there's just texts that are just plain confusing. And that's what we have this morning, is a text that I would not have picked if I were just to pick whatever passage I wanted to preach on. And yet, as we go through this line by line, we come to this text. And I'll I'll read it to you now so that you might understand what I mean when I say this is confusing. It's verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my suffering. That rejoicing and suffering, that's confusing in and of itself but that's not the part I'm talking about. That's difficult. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And here it is in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, what in the world does Paul mean when he says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, that's what I get to tell you this morning. I'm going to expose what that means. But before you get uh, too carried away with thinking, wow, did he just deny the gospel? Uh, may I just say, don't cancel, Paul. <laughs> not yet and not ever. You see, Paul, he's an apostle and he penned the perfect word of God in this kind of language that he's using here in this passage. If a preacher, if I were to say this, that, that there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions, well, m- most of us would probably be pretty concerned with what that implies, but before you tear this page out of your Bible to try to change the meaning of what it plainly says, remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And so understand what this means. If all Scripture is God-breathed, then Colossians 1.24 is also God-breathed. Which means it comes from the mouth of God. The very breath that put life into Adam breathes life into us when we receive the full counsel of God's word. And that includes this confusing passage. And furthermore, all scripture is profitable. Including Colossians 1.24. This is for our good, that we would lack nothing, but instead would be made complete and equipped for every good work. So do not cancel Paul over Colossians 1.24. This scripture, it is for you and for me, even if it's confusing. And rejecting a single verse, even a single command, even just one word from God's perfect word has dramatic consequences. If this verse, though confusing, is to be rejected, well then, how are we to know what parts of the Bible we ought to listen to? You see, if we reject even this one verse, then all of a sudden the inerrancy of Scripture, the perfection of God's Word is brought into question. And though even our modern translations are not perfect, we do have wonderful modern translations that we ought to meditate on. But furthermore, if we do not like this verse and we decide to just ignore it or gloss over it or pass it by altogether, well, then we might even be choosing to reject God's word for us, what it is that it is instructing us to do so that we might obey what God has revealed to us. So here's what I wanna say just as a preface before we get started. Don't cancel Paul this morning, and if you will, hear me out. Don't cancel me this morning, not yet at least, because my aim is to be faithful to this text, which is God's word for us. It is for your good and it's for God's glory. And it's possible maybe for you to hear a sentence of the sermon or even a paragraph to rip it out of context and deem me to be a heretic. So I want to say, listen to everything that I say in context with what I say. And also listen to everything that Paul says as well. Don't just rip this passage to mean something that Paul is not intending it to mean. So be noble, like a Berean, and examine what I'm about to say and test it to see if it aligns with the rest of God's word. So with this in mind, let us look at this passage. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, before I tell you what this means, I think it's helpful to put up some guardrails, and I wanna tell you what this doesn't mean. Paul is not calling into question the sufficiency of Christ's death to atone for our sins. He is not diminishing the supremacy of Christ. He is not trying to undo what he has already laid before us as he has showed us Christ's preeminence. You see, if Paul was denying the sufficiency of Christ's atoning death here in this verse, well, then he would be denying what Jesus clearly taught and he would even be found contradicting himself. And this is impossible for not a jot or tittle, not an iota or a dot of God's word is misplaced or an accident, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 18. And so what this means is that all of Scripture is inspired, including the smallest punctuation and even every single letter. It is all inspired and perfect. And so with this in mind, let me lay out a principle for us in biblical interpretation. The Bible, it does not contradict itself. And since this is true, when we are interpreting the Bible, we ought to understand Scripture in light of itself. And so when we come to a scripture that is confusing or less clear, perhaps like Colossians 1.24, what we ought to do is look to the rest of scripture to help us gain insight as to what it means. And so for as to what is lacking in Christ's affliction, let me start by telling you, there is nothing lacking in Christ's death to reconcile sinners to God. It's helpful that we are right on the heels of having celebrated Good Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. Good Friday, we remembered the death of Christ, his perfect life, his innocent death, and because of these things, his perfect righteousness that is imputed to us as he gives us his perfect righteousness. Last Friday, Mark preached, it is finished, That was Jesus's final words before he gave up his spirit. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it, that the work of reconciliation that he came to accomplish on our behalf was done. The price was paid in full. And in that sense, there was nothing lacking in Christ's suffering. The resurrection, therefore, proved that the price was paid in full. For on the third day, he came back to life. Which means, as Tate preached last Sunday, that our faith, it is not in vain. It is not meaningless. But it has this eternal hope that Christ is alive. And as he lives, so too we shall live with him. So, understand, he is not denying the work of Christ. In fact, as we've already seen, Colossians 1, 19 through 24, in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He died once and for all, as, as we see even in Hebrews 9, 25, nor was, it in order, nor, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with a blood that is not his own, For then he, as Christ, would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so what we should be crystal clear on this morning is Paul is not calling into question the sufficiency of Christ's death to atone for our sins. And so if that's not what we're talking about, then why does Paul say here in Colossians 1.24 that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church? One commentator, he sums it up well. He says, there is a sense in which it is quite legitimate to speak of Christ's afflictions as incomplete, a sense in which they may be and indeed must be supplemented. For the sufferings of Christ may be considered from two points of view. They either have the sacrificial efficacy and that sacrificial efficacy is what we have talked about before where his his death accomplished the work of salvation or... They have ministerial utility. In other words, Paul isn't saying that Christ's death was not enough for the church to be saved, but what he is saying as the church is in need of ongoing service from Christ's servants, whom Christ has appointed to serve his church. I'll read that one more time because it's kind of confusing. The church, that is us as a body, are in need of ongoing service from Christ's servants whom Christ has appointed to serve his church. And so, understand the work of Christ is finished, but the work of the church is not. That's the main point of this sermon, because it's the main point of this text. Christ's work, it is finished. As we've already stated in the Apostles' Creed, our Lord, He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Understand what that means, and I think moms who have little kids, or even those of you who do not sit at a desk all day, will appreciate this best of all. At the end of a day, after a hard day's work, what do you do? You sit because the day is done and the work is finished. And so it is, Christ, he is seated. His work is finished, but the church is not, for our work is yet to be done. It is ongoing and it will continue until Christ appears in glory. So the work of the church, it is not finished. This is why Paul, he's saying this. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what is this work that we're talking about? What does he have in mind? Well, listen again, verse 25 to 29 to the rest of this paragraph in context. This is the the ministry that he has in mind, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So you can, I think, perceive from the rest of the context of this that there is work to be done. That's what Paul is saying. And that is what is lacking for the church, is is the church is in need of Paul, the apostle, to serve and to suffer for our good. We understand this even from other places in Scripture that the work is not done, and that, in fact, if there is not work done, saints will not be saved. Romans 10, 14, and 15, Paul says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, if the gospel is not preached by Paul and other faithful servants— then there will be no faith. And if there is no faith, then there is no salvation. And so though Christ finished the work on the cross to die for our sins, to bear the penalty that we all deserved, and though his work is finished, saints, there is still work for us to do. But it's not just the lost sinner that is lacking something. It is not just the one who has yet to hear the gospel that is in need of something having been filled up because Paul, he's writing to believers and they themselves are the ones that are lacking something, which means for you and me this morning, we all are are lacking something this morning that we must be filled up with by Paul and by other servants like him. I read it already, but I'll read it again and see if you can't spot what is lacking 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Which means, implies that without the word being preached to us and receiving that word daily, well, we are incomplete. So apart from the ministry of this word, you and I, we lack something. And while Christ's death is enough to reconcile the entire church back to God, we need to recognize that there is still work for us to do in order for these sinners to be brought back to God so that they might hear, so that they might believe, so that they might repent, and so keep in step with the Spirit. And this will be accomplished by the church through the power of Of the Spirit. So here's the main idea this morning Christ's work, though it is done, the work of the church is yet to be finished. And there's three applications I want us to consider this morning with this. Now that we understand the difficult part of the text, let us consider the call to serve the church. Understand what I mean when I use this word call here in this sense. Paul, as he's rejoicing in his sufferings and the afflictions that he's, he's taking in to serve the church, he, he, I think, rightly recognizes his call from God. Paul, he isn't serving a church in the way that he thought the church needed service, but instead he is serving the church in the way that Christ has ordered him to serve the church. This is what I mean when we talk about the call to serve the church. These are not just human ideas, this is ordained by God to man. Listen to Paul once again as he's reflecting upon his call in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. You see it multiple times, but this is just an example where he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. A servant of God needs more than just this feeling of doing something for God because feelings, they are deceptive. Feelings, they they change day by day. I feel like something today and tomorrow. I will feel far different. No, we cannot just feel like serving God. We need something more. We need God's word, which calls us to serve him. And the man who senses this call will do all that God requires of him, whether or not he feels like it. And so Paul, speaking here of his calling, once again, we see this made clear when the Lord tells Ananias in Acts 9, speaking of Paul, he says, go for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, notice how his suffering is linked directly to his calling. And that calling is to carry the name of the Lord to his people, be it Gentiles, kings, or Israel. So this is why we even see in Colossians 1.28, him, that's Christ, we proclaim and put the link with his proclamation to that of his suffering in our text this morning. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, that is for the sake of Christ's body, the church. Understand, church, we are lacking. We need to be made complete. And that will happen through the ministry of the word. And Paul, he saw this ministry, his ministry that he had been called to do as being indispensable to the church. What I mean by this is, apart from the ministry of the Paul, uh, the ministry of Paul, the church lacked what was needed for their salvation. Again, not in the sense of lacking the, the sinless life and atoning death of Christ. That is not the lacking that Paul has in mind here, but what we lack needs to be filled up every single day through the application of the gospel. Notice again, this language used of the body here in verse 24. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. We've already seen this imagery used here in Colossians earlier. And yet once again, we are reminded that we are a body and Christ is the head. And though he is the head and the preeminent one that is above all, we also should understand just from this imagery that the body has many members that all serves for the good of the whole. And so if we try to say, no, 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 I don't need the apostles. No, 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 I don't need the church. I can just do this me and Jesus kind of Christianity thing where I just am isolated with me and Jesus. Don't get me wrong. You need to have personal communion with Christ but Christ has also given us this church, this body. And so if we try to disconnect ourselves from Paul and from the scriptures and from Christ's servants, we are in effect saying, all I need is to be connected to the head while not recognizing that Christ has also given us lungs so that we can breathe, so that oxygen would be brought to the blood so that the blood could reach through all the rest of the body and the body be nourished and built up. And so he is not in any way putting himself as next to the head or as important to the head, but nonetheless, Paul's ministry is vital to the good of the church. And the ministry of the word for even us this morning is vital for our good if we wish to have life in Christ. You see, the gospel, it needs to be brought where it has not been heard before. Christ's saints need to hear it so that they might even believe in the first place. But more than this, the gospel needs to be retold where it has been forgotten. Every single one of us in one way or another has forgotten the gospel this week. And we have lacked faith. And so we need the word to remind us of what Christ has done. And not only this, but the gospel, it needs to be applied where it is not being applied. That is to say, it needs to be applied where there is sin. Now, understand once again, God, he does not need you or me. He is self-existing and self-sufficient. Our service adds nothing to God. And yet, God in his infinite wisdom ordained that his body, the church, would be served by these humble servants. And so while Christ's work is sufficient for salvation, church, we still have work to do. This is why God gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What we should recognize is God actually works through human activity. God is still at work, amen? But he might want to do his work through you. We see this clearly in the book of Ruth. You remember the story, this Moabite woman moving back to Israel with Naomi, her mother-in-law, widowed with no husband, no men to provide for them. And then there's this man, Boaz, who begins to bless them and care for them. And Boaz, he blesses Ruth with these words. In Ruth 2.12, the Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, underline these words here, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Understand, he's saying, may the Lord be your protector and your provider. Now, remember the scene in the next chapter where Ruth lays at the feet of Boaz and listen to what Ruth says to him. At midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Listen, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So in a sense, Ruth is saying to Boaz, you have prayed that the Lord would bless me that he would be my shelter and my provider. And so, Boaz, how about you become that shelter that you prayed for since you are able to redeem me? Understand, God, he works through human activity. And here in this case, God, he is using Paul for the good of his body, the church. And You might be surprised to find out that God wants to use you as well to serve this body and the other Christians around the world who are all a part of this universal body as well. And so yes, we pray. We pray for the sick to be healed by God. We pray for those who are afflicted by Satan through various temptations and trials to have deliverance. We pray for those who are lost in their sins to have faith and believe and so be saved. But the way God may grant your requests might just happen through your service or the service of another saint who is obeying Christ's commands. The work of Christ is finished. Yes, it is true. But even more than this, even Paul's ministry is done. He finished his race. But the work of the church is not done. There is still work to be had, for Christ has not yet come. So, our Lord, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, so that we would all recognize our need for these laborers, But not only that, may we recognize that we are some of those laborers just as well. What this might look like for some of us is that we may shepherd people. And it's not limited to pastoral ministry. That means you might disciple someone. You might teach someone. You might even evangelize to those who have yet to hear. This might look like older women taking under younger women to teach them and and disciple them. And same with older men teaching younger men. This might mean younger men and women commit themselves to serve in Christ for a lifetime. Whatever it means, I don't know exactly for every individual. But listen, if you are a part of the body, Christ has given you certain gifts to use for the good of the body. Oh, but we're good at coming up with excuses. <laughs> Josh, I'm too old Moses, though, he was 80 years old when God called him to deliver Israel from Egypt. Some others might say, well, Josh, I'm just too young. And yet even David was a young shepherd boy that his own father overlooked as being even worthy of being a king when the Lord had appointed him to his duty. So understand, if you want to come up with excuses, age can't be one of those excuses for why you are not serving the body but I'm not even talking about serving vocationally. I'm not saying that every single one of you has to become a pastor. That's what I grew up in the tradition where if you were to serve the Lord, you either had to be a pastor or a missionary. That's not what I'm suggesting, although I'm not writing that off. But consider even God's servants, Aquila and Priscilla. These were tent makers, tent makers. Acts 18, two and three, Paul, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. I mean, even Paul himself at one point or another was bivocational, working with his hands and serving the church. And yet even listen to what Paul even calls these two wonderful this husband and wife he says this in Romans 16:3 greet Prisca and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus God he he calls his servants to serve the church even in the workplace for there are places where you will go that I could never imagine going but it's not just preaching in the church. It's not even just evangelizing in the church, but even doing so in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, among your family. Those places need the gospel because the Lord has saints among them who he has chosen before the foundation of the world who have yet to hear the gospel and so be saved. Now, I'm hardly even covering all the ways in which we might serve the church. And so I'm gonna read a passage and I realize that as I do this, I'm gonna be opening a huge can of worms because I'm not gonna explain it, not perfectly and not fully. But listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And then he goes on and he begins to to list the gifts. And I'm not going to read that here this morning. But what I want to point out is something phenomenal about this passage. He's saying, for all these different gifts, it is the same spirit that is in all. That means the very same spirit that is in any preacher is in every single believer, no matter how young they are in the faith. This means the very same Spirit of God that was with Moses is no longer just with the one man, but with the entire priesthood of believers. This means that the very same Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you, Christian, so that you might serve the church. There is a lack here in the church that needs to be filled by Christ's servants. And this is how God has ordained his church to operate. And so do you sense the call to serve Christ in his church? And will you respond to that call? If no, then what is it that keeps you from responding Perhaps it's unworthiness because you think you set yourself to be the chief of sinners. But consider 1 Timothy 15, where Paul himself, the chief of sinners, says that he received mercy for this reason, that in him as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So if you think you're unworthy because of your past, understand, Paul, he owns this one as the chief of sinners. It's not an excuse for present sins. If you are living in present sin, I'm sure you're right in your concern and you should not serve the church, but instead you should repent and come to Christ. Furthermore, we might come up with other excuses though, perhaps like a lack of skill. But again, consider Paul, this humble servant. In 1 Corinthians 1, and I, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So for those of you who are in the Simeon course, be encouraged if you're afraid of getting up to preach because Paul had this fear before the Corinthians as he too was to bring the gospel to them. And my speech, he continues, and my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I'm not saying that all skill is unimportant, but what we should recognize even more than the skill that you may or may not possess is the power of God rests on you because you have the spirit of God. And so if we, like Moses, wanna come up with these excuses as to why we cannot go before Pharaoh, listen to the rebuke of the Lord to Moses and to you. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? These are not legitimate reasons for not responding to the call that God has given you to serve his church. But if you feel weak and unable, that's a good thing. And it's a true thing. For God, he has done something mysterious, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. God, he has given you talents, Christians, not in the same measure for every single one of us, but nonetheless, you have his spirit and he has given you talents. And if you think you can bury that talent only to receive a reward from the master when he returns, do not deceive yourself. So what is it then that keeps you from serving the church? We should be running out of excuses at this point. Perhaps it's this. Listen again to our text this morning. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now you can underline right here the, the sufferings here that Paul is experiencing. And so let us turn our attention to Paul's suffering for the sake of the church And let us consider the cost of serving the church. I do believe that some of us do not serve because we do not want to pay the price. Certainly the prosperity gospel would teach us otherwise. That the following Jesus, that, that believing in him has no cost, but instead every benefit to gain. You give money, guess what? God will give you more money. And in that sense, you can live your best life here and now. And yet that is far from what Paul is teaching here. He suffers. He suffers. And before we get puffed up with pride for not succumbing to this prosperity gospel ourselves, we would do well to observe that the average American Christian knows nothing of the kind of suffering that Paul is describing here. Where is his suffering? Certainly, anguish. Certainly, his anxiety for the church. We see that elsewhere. But here, he's talking about his suffering in his flesh. He's talking about being beaten and stoned, persecuted, put in prison. He's talking about a a physical kind of suffering that most of us cannot associate with, at least not in the way that Paul is. His suffering isn't just because he's a man who's got back pain. His suffering is due to the fact that he is serving the church. And we Americans, we do not like this idea of being persecuted for the faith. In fact, as of late, as things get a little bit hot around the church and more difficult to serve Christ, we get a little bit uncomfortable. We've come to expect these freedoms to worship where we want and how we want to believe whatever it is that we believe. We have been accustomed as Americans that these belong to us and that they cannot be taken away. And yet in Scripture, what we see, and even throughout the world today, that Christianity is something that you will suffer for. So expect it, Christian. Expect to suffer. First Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you hear that, American Christians? Don't be surprised by what's happening in our midst. Jesus himself, he foretold that we would suffer. Then they will deliver you over to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and even the apostles themselves. If indeed all desire to live a godly life, indeed all who desire, excuse me, to live a godly life will be persecuted. Count the cost of, of serving Christ. I'm not gonna read it, but you should read Luke fourteen twenty-eight 28 through 33. Count the cost. You will be hated. You will be slandered. You will be mocked. You will be betrayed by those whom you love. You will be misunderstood. And you, like Paul, might even suffer in the flesh, even to the point of death. So sign up to serve the church. Ah, uh, no! but even at the slightest scent of suffering, even the most noble Christians and loyal to Christ have turned away from him. Remember Peter? Even if I must die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. And all the disciples, they said the same. But then during Jesus' passion, when the pressure really started coming down, you remember what happens. Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And then he does it not just the one time, but another and a third time as well. Peter, he feared the suffering that he would face at the hands of those who did not love Jesus. This morning, my job is rather easy because most of you are lovers of the word and lovers of the gospel, and so to preach with boldness here and now, it's, it's mostly easy. But what of preaching in your neighborhood, your workplace, to those family members who have yet to put their faith in Christ, or even to the family member who says they believe but are living in sin? That's where it gets hard but it's not all easy even within the church when we serve one another. There are other pressures that even Peter himself experienced yet again. Galatians, you remember what's going on there. The youth definitely will remember because we've been going through it. There's the pressure from these Judaizers, these these Christian Jews who want to make the Gentile Christians, I don't know if I said that right, (laughs) they're trying to make them obey certain Jewish laws. So they're saying, you need to get circumcised. You need to eat certain foods in order to be a Christian Christian. And then Cephas, he, that's Peter, he, he, he succumbed to this pressure. And, and so what did Peter say? He, or Paul, excuse me, he opposed Cephas to his face, that's Peter, because he stood condemned. So it is, even in the church, there are pressures that might cause for us to try not to serve the church. Because everyone has different opinions. Whether you should homeschool your kids or send them to private school. Whether you should let your kids watch this or that whether we should play only hymns or modern songs, whatever it might be. You might go, I don't know if I could serve in that kind of place because there's so many pressures and chances are high that even for a handful of us here, some of us don't serve because we have experienced the suffering of serving in the church from our own brothers and sisters. But let me remind you, you ought not to be surprised by these trials. And furthermore, these trials should not allow you to shrink back from serving the church. Now, this might seem like a terrible way to to motivate anyone to serve this morning. Serve the church, God calls you to do it, and by the way, you'll suffer. Good luck with that. Even if I were to to just leave it at that point for us this morning, you know what? I would be better off and more interested in just walking away from the ministry myself. I would not have any interest in doing this work if it were just to sign up to suffer. Suffer. But there is a far, far greater comfort in doing this work and a far, far greater joy in serving Christ's body than all the world has to offer. Listen to Paul once again. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I want us to focus here in the closing moments on the cheer of serving the church. On the surface, it might have seemed more confusing as to figure out what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. And well, that's a technical thing that's difficult for understand, what's more perplexing in this text and more plain even still is that Paul joyfully suffers for the church. Now, I can't really explain this very well. I mean, I could tell you that you're supposed to do it, but it's not gonna help you do it, is it? But let us try to understand what it is that caused him to rejoice. But understand this as well. It will require faith, which comes from God. It will require a heart change that comes from God. And this is nothing less than a miracle for you to serve and to suffer and to do so gladly. So understand, first of all, what might have caused Paul this kind of cheer. He's... He was rejoicing in it because he knew that his faith and his work was not in vain. You see this concept of, of rejoicing and suffering so many times throughout the scriptures. Listen to it in Acts five forty one. Then they left the presence of the council after having been beaten. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The dishonor, Given in persecution, became for the apostles, and it is for us a badge of honor that you get to be identified with Christ, who himself was hated and killed. Paul, he has this cheer furthermore because it is good for the church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Don't you know, Christian, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive? Paul does, and so he rejoices. But not only that, he rejoices because this suffering is good for him, and your suffering is good for you as well. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And yet again, I'll read 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is to be revealed. And so, furthermore, there is cheer, not only because it's good for you, but, but ultimately... There is a great reward that you will receive. Yes, life, it is is marked by suffering. If you're a Christian, certainly will be. But even if you're not, if you're like, "I I don't wanna serve the Lord. I wanna enjoy my life. Well, guess what? You will still suffer because death will come to all. But for the Christian who suffers for Christ, he can do so gladly because his hope is not in this world, but it is in Christ who will give him eternal life where there will be no more suffering, no more tears. So this is the cheer of the believer in their suffering. They can rejoice because their life, our life is hid in Christ And our treasure is laid up in heaven. And so do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And then 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Oh, you can have cheer, Christian, in your suffering because you suffer like your Lord. And just as he died, he rose again. And so, too, for all who believe in him, who serve him gladly, so too you will suffer. But that is not the end of the story, for in the end, you will live. And so, serve the church, saints. Serve the church and suffer for her and rejoice for your reward is great in heaven. I wanna close up by reading this quote from David Livingston, a missionary to Africa during the 1800s, and he sums it up beautifully. For my own part, he said, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk about the sacrifices that I've made spending so much of my life in Africa away with the word and such a view and with such a thought it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the the common conveniences and the charities of this life may make us pause, may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us I have never made a sacrifice and so Christian blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Christ's account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the fear that we have to serve you, to be identified with you, to suffer for you. And Lord, for even those of us who are serving and are suffering, forgive us for the times when we do so with grumbling. Lord, instead, would you give us joy, in our work. Give us faith to believe that our reward is laid up in heaven. And Lord, strengthen us for the day at hand. Help for us not to be anxious about tomorrow, whatever it may bring, but Lord, today, would you strengthen our faith so we might do and obey all your commands. And so Lord, we serve you and we serve one another. Lord, be glorified through it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.